1: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
2: It's unfair to dictate to anyone how they should grieve or judge the bereaved for finding comfort in more unconventional methods of mourning or ways of continuing bonds with the deceased.
3: So today we have a really interesting episode of the podcast, and it's something a little bit different. We're delighted to be joined by Kelsey Donnelly, who is a PhD graduate from Queen's University in Belfast. And Kelsey got in touch with us about her research that looks into the ways in which 21st century literature can provide a new perspective on our grief, as well as the political emphasis to resolve, process, or recover from grief as rapidly as possible. Um, I have to say, Kelsey, when I got your message, I was immediately really interested in your work. Um, thank you. And I chatted That's to our so nice to hear. <laughs> I chatted to our producer, Ian, right away and sort of said, I think this sounds really relevant and really interesting, um, especially right now. Um mm-hmm. I think we, we just get right into it. I mean, we are living, you know, I know your work covers this, um, and I've read some of the stuff you've written about it. Um but when it comes to grief, we're living in a, I was going to say unusual time. I don't know if that's the right word, but we're definitely living mm, in a absolutely. time a time when grief is prevalent across everything we're doing in our world, in our lives. Um, mm-hmm. Can you start just to talk a little bit about kind of the relationship of, you t- You described COVID as sort of a state of suspension, which I feel like is so, like, probably the one of the best things I've read about it, it does feel like a state of suspension that we've been in. Can you just chat to us a little bit about your, your sort of, your the research you've done in looking at COVID and grief?
2: Yeah, um, well, the COVID angle Um. that I wrote an article quite recently about it. it was during my PhD. And it was quite different for me because my research is focused more on, well, it's 9-11 literature and 21st century American literature more broadly. But at the time, whenever I was writing about it, a lot of the issues seemed to speak to the pages beyond my thesis. Um And COVID at the time was being compared um, by some American media outlets to 9-11, which I thought was quite an interesting connection and quite unusual and quite unexpected. But it really started to make me rethink ideas about grief in the context of COVID. And I write in my research about still life and how grief is this time of suspension and deep reflection on feeling on memories and this really profound experience and it's distinct from this fast pace of progress that constitutes everyday life it's so busy but grief sort of stills life in that sense and we're in this sort of liminal space between past and present Um, and I find myself feeling like that during COVID for me even at the minute when people talk about um, the seasons it still feels like me that to me that it's we're in March um, at the beginning of lockdown. But um, I thought, yes, the the idea that we're living some sort of still life at the minute because everyday life has in some ways grown to a halt. And I thought that really coincided with with the suspended time of grief. But also, you know, this sort of suspension, I think, in a way, has given us time to really reflect um, on things that we wouldn't necessarily have had time to reflect on before. But as well as that, obviously, grief practices have changed quite drastically with regards to grieving our loved ones during this time of COVID because of the restrictions surrounding funerals and public commemoration services. So grief really has taken on and how we express grief and how we publicly mourn our loved ones has, I think, really changed during this time. And it's really, really difficult
3: it's, it's, it is it's very, very difficult. And I think in the last few months, I've we started to really see the impact of very few people being allowed to attend funerals, not being mm-hmm. able to hug, not being able to take someone for a coffee, not being able to um, do the things that we're, hum- as humans, we do. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I thought was kind of interesting that you said, and this is ties into the sort of like more global look at things, just progressive and profound change, how grief can kind of like really do that and how it can play that part um joe biden is a very interesting um Person right Mm -hmm. now in many ways, but from a grief (laughs) from a grief perspective, he's also, I mean, to have this election and being one of the the biggest things to happen, um, and actually, in terms of the state of suspension, for something to actually sort of move in a different direction, Mm -hmm. within that state of suspension, but also to have someone at the forefront who is um, someone who is no stranger to grief and who speaks quite openly about loss and empathy Mm -hmm. and his family. um, Do you think that that will have an impact in sort of how? the world looks at grief, potentially?
2: I think it will. I mean, I hope it does, um, because I think that he has channeled a lot of his experiences of grief in some ways into his his approach to, to life and mm-hmm. his interactions with other people. Um, and he, for me anyway, I think he comes across as quite an empathetic person. Mm-hmm. And a lot of, I, I was watching a documentary on him a few weeks ago when he talked about the death of his son. And he said he felt a compulsion you know to to run for the presidency he was in some ways motivated a lot by his family and this compulsion to to make things better especially after um the Trump presidency yeah. um but i think as well even you know so i think he he does retain this idea of grief but also hope as well mm. you know and i think that's i think that's what the world needs right now because even after the 2016 election Another sort of interest that came up in my research was this feeling of profound grief mm. for for a future that may never have unfolded. People sort of had expectations, you know, of things, how they would change if, you know, Hillary Clinton or, or you know, um, these expectations. And then there was a sudden sort of mourning for a lost future mm. that they had imagined. Um, so i hope i really hope that the the biden presidency will will be able to draw on his experiences of grief to facilitate this profound change that i think grief can honestly engender
3: this is a, a tough question i don't know the answer even in the slightest <laughs> so i mean you you've done a lot more work on the research side of this so maybe you have an insight into it i mean when you look at so when it when you, it comes to grief obviously there's a lot of um information and and some of it outdated at this point but in terms of like the stages of grief or Mm -hmm. moving from one state of grief to the next or evolving Mm -hmm. or all those kinds and a lot of it has been kind of evolved over the years and people no longer feel as though you go through stages but that you more kind of learn to live with it when Mm as when like a society or the you know globally we go through a collective grief Mm
2: -hmm. you
3: know Is there stages of moving beyond it? Is it something that we kind of embeds into us and and is then part of us as we go forward and how we informs how we create our new society, which obviously we will after this? Um, What are your feelings on
2: that? I think when I was reading, when I started my PhD and I was reading um, so much of the academic grief scholarship that had been conducted and primarily within um the sci disciplines and the social sciences um when i was reading it i realized that some of the really prevalent ideas and they're still so influential and like the stage models they're so skewed in ways. They're almost very mechanical um, and they adopt this quite rev- reductive approach, I would say, with regards to the nature of human interdependency. And so when I was looking at some of the literary texts that I was examining for my thesis, they really challenged two of the main underpinning assumptions of the most dominant model of grief that is That is pretty prevalent in a lot of bereavement counselling as well. So they they challenge this idea that grief is primarily a psychological response to loss that is amenable to diagnosis and diagnostic criteria. And they also challenge this, I think, really very problematic idea that grief is diagnosable as pathological Mm. if the bereaved have not returned to this pre-bereavement state as rapidly as possible. And the idea that grief that persists after six to 12 months is in some ways pathological. that idea I think is so so difficult to comprehend and so far removed from the actual reality and very embodied lived experience of grief. So there's sort of this stigma attached and although I think we have moved on and I think the actually like popular discourse has been more um, I think it's developed a lot quicker um, than the academic, grief scholarship that has conducted that still very much works within those ideas of prescriptive phases and timelines and moving beyond grief to to reach the state of a recovery but I think even you know talking about grief recovery it implies that grief is some sort of obstacle to overcome when actually it's it's an all-encompassing experience that I don't think can ever be be overcome as such you know it stays with us it it becomes it, it changes who we are um, and this idea of returning to this pre-bereavement state, I think, is just, it's almost illusory.
1: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. plushcare.com slash weight loss.
3: Yeah, I think anyone that's been through, you know, would would agree with you that anyone who's been through a loss, it's it's transformative, completely transformative. Mm -hmm. Whether or not you know that um, as it's happening, or you look at it retrospectively, and you recognize that you are a different person due to the loss of someone you love. Mm -hmm. Do you think people are, you know, when you're when people are speaking quite like, is it naive to believe that there's a, a you know in 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 terms of maybe like in your work with 911 and how the world never never went back to what it was pre-911 mm-hmm. um and how the world will not go back to how it was pre-covid um, do you think people are being naive when they hang on to the hope of the of returning to normal
2: it's always hard to know isn't it mm-hmm. <laughs> this time hindsight is the great thing but um sometimes I hear people just, you know, in everyday conversations saying, you know, things will return to normal. Now there's a vaccine, we will go back to life as as it was. And and I think, you know, I, I think it is a bit a bit naive because the idea of returning to, to ordinary life when such fundamental change has taken place, I think, um, I mean not in the foreseeable, not within three months at least. I don't I don't think that's gonna happen. Um but I think this experience of COVID, it really has it's it's changed a lot of things that I didn't necessarily think were possible for instance locking down airports you know like locking down businesses it's it almost feels surreal and if someone had asked me this time last year that we would or someone had told me that we would be experiencing this and we'd be walking around with masks and and we wouldn't be able to see our loved ones except through a window pane or grandparents would be separated from their children it I would never have thought that possible. No. Um and I think I think so much of this will stick with us and what I sort of took a lot from my research was that grief it almost it makes us appreciate um like the ordinariness of life in a sense. You know, we we take for granted many things and I think when we experience grief we start to actually appreciate those little small things. And I think in Living in this sort of covid era, I think I myself have have taken a renewed or gained a new awareness of the importance of everyday life and the things that we used to take for granted, just simple things like shaking hands, like giving someone a hug as you said, now it's just to be able to do that with someone that we haven't seen in so long, it's, you know, it would it's just it means so much more it's it's so much more profound I think
3: almost feels risque or something it's like um, <laughs> a, a neighbor hugged me I was I had a baby um, six months ago and when I was just about to have the baby I was I was pretty heavily pregnant um, a neighbor of mine she just said I, I, she just looked at me and said I can't help it and she just gave me a big hug and I, <laughs> I felt like we'd done something terribly wrong but it also it, it felt like the most wonderful two seconds that I'd had yeah. in so long because first of all because of the spontaneity of it the fact mm-hmm. that she didn't she just went yeah. with her instincts and we, we we really can't spontaneity is completely diminished from our lives because we have yeah. to think so cautiously about everything we're mm-hmm. doing um i wanted to just talk to you a little bit about minority groups because that's part of your research and Certainly with what has happened in America, and I, I, as an American, obviously, this is leaning a little American, guys. I'm sorry for this episode is a little American heavy, but I'm very interested in um, kind of how in the last year, obviously, things have been um, really difficult um, in America in terms of um, race relations and, and, and everything else. But um, in terms of how minority groups and grief... Can you talk a little bit about um, what your research found in that in that area? Because I think it's something that's really important to to talk
0: about.
2: Yeah. Um. I think one of the one of my favorite texts that I read during my research and wrote on is by an American poet called Claudia Rankine. Um and she wrote Citizen, an American lyric, and it's quite a prolific text, and you probably have heard of it. But I wrote a bit about the lyric that preceded it. It was it's called Don't Let Me Be Lonely, an American lyric, and it talks very much about the relationship between poetry and how we might commemorate Black lives and how we might make them matter, um, through poetry. And Rankine defines the condition of black black life in America as one of mourning. And in both of her American lyrics, she demonstrates how everyday life for millions of black Americans is actually defined by death. So grief, it it becomes this all-encompassing chronic experience rather than something that can be worked through or something that has a beginning and an end point and I actually I have a wee bit of the book beside me if if I could talk about one episode where she yeah, please do. she she talks about grieving for um a man called James Bird, um junior who was murdered in June 1998 and she recalls the memory of his death and in doing so she makes it very public but just to give you a bit of background she actually describes um, his death in very visceral terms, writing, On June 7th, 98 three men, John King, Lawrence Brewer and Sean Berry, offered James Byrd Jr. a ride home in Berry's pickup truck. Bird was walking along a road in Jasper, a rural town in East Texas. He was returning home from his niece's bridal shower. Instead of bringing him home, the men brought him to a clearing in the woods where they beat him and chained him to the back of a truck. They then sped along a road just east of the town. Bird's shredded torso was found first. Then his head, neck, and right arm were found about a mile away. Police said a trail of blood and body parts stretched for two miles. That representation for me—it's so visceral, and it's—you could, you know—it's just so graphic, and it's interesting because this memory resurfaces while the lyricist, the American lyricist of the title, is watching television coverage of the results of the 2004 U.S. presidential election. And while she's watching it, she also recalls that Bush couldn't remember the details of Byrd's death, even though it happened in Bush's home state of Texas. Mm. Um, so the lyricist in ranking overall, she intimates that the re-election of the president is an indication that for many um of Bush's supporters, um, you know, they're they're willing to Overlock. to assimilate or realise yeah. that ordinary anti-black racism is not something past but present, ongoing, and um and it's okay. Mm-hmm. You know, it's okay for Bush to forget about it. It's his supporters, you know, she sort of suggests that his re-elections implies that his supporters live with this. They assimilate it into everyday life and still consider this life to be good and vote for it to continue. And she talks to the TV as if she were talking to Boss. She says, you don't remember because you don't care. Mm. Um, and then the reader is then forced into a face-to-face encounter with Bird because the poet, Frankine, she prints an image of Bird's face on the page. So in this way, the responsibility for remembering his death and his suffering is shifted from boss to the reader. Mm. Um, and the lyricist, she she responds by saying, with sadness and says this sadness lives in the recognition that a life cannot matter or as there are billions of lives that do not matter my sadness um, is alive alongside this realization and even though this text was written in 2004 it's and the black lives matter movement was created in 2014 it's it's very very prescient and even I found in ways because it reminded me so much because she's counting the the votes coming in during the election, yeah. and again it very much spoke to the present. And she's like, oh, I'm losing hope, but like, this time it was quite different. <laughs> but uh, in a way, it speaks to the this year's presidential election because although the the outcome was was obviously different, there's this idea that even after the protests of George Floyd's death, and you know it was it brought so much publicity to the reality and prevalence of police brutality in um, the US and, you know, we saw so much of public expression of grief and, you know, at the time a lot of people said this will change everything, this man's death is not in vain mm. um, and it had such, you know, a massive impact. But it is also quite striking that such a large percentage of the population still voted for Trump even though, you know, his his response to to the protest was you know arguably um you know it was it was lacking or you know offensive or just well yeah i, mean, I think
3: it comes back to like a, that maybe the word condone like it's saying mm. it's saying you know this happened while i you know you see they like every president has a choice um I, re- yeah. I recognize that it's not a simple choice because i know that there's probably an awful lot of um bureaucracy and things that go involved with these decisions but he had a choice how to how to approach it and mm-hmm. how to and how to recognize it and how to honor a, a man's life who yeah. represented so much to so many. And the choice was to condone it. And therefore, mm-hmm. uh, by condoning it, I, I you know, every vote. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I that's, you know, my politics probably aren't. Uh, secret to anyone but to me that saying that 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 i'm okay with that is something that i could never in a million years imagine doing yeah, um, yeah. and if if you're if you could honor someone in some way then that vote the vote against that person would be the a one way that you could yeah. try and work towards change yeah. we're gonna start to wrap up now but i just had one last question for you because i just wanted to know what your feeling on it was um it was actually when i first when uh, ian and i first talked about doing this interview it was one of the first things that it had just happened so This happened a couple of weeks ago. But um, the Kanye West hologram, I know we're going we're going we're going into kind of pop culture here a little bit. But the Kanye West hologram that he gave Kim Kardashian for her 40th birthday, if anyone hasn't seen it, I don't know how you haven't seen it yet. But if you haven't seen it, um, it's a hologram of her dead father speaking to her from uh, from the current day. Um, It's it's hard not to think of it as a big Big moment in grief, I think it is, Mm -hmm. because obviously I know in um, Black Mirror, the TV show, they had done an episode on it, and a lot of people who had experienced grief spoke about it and how they would feel. And it's always people who have lost someone. How would I feel Mm -hmm. if I um if I were given the chance to speak to someone who I loved who I lost again, but it's not really them? Mm -hmm. What are your feelings on that as a cultural kind of as a moment or as an idea or as a?
2: Yeah, I I thought it was really really fascinating I have to say and to me it actually it was a very because I had completed my PhD it actually really opened new pathways for me for thinking about grief in terms of digital death mm. um, and grief culture whether it's online and um, personally like I had a very visceral response to it I found it quite unsettling and uncanny Um, but it was I think Kim's response was quite interesting too because she she was very pleased with it obviously um I think she said it was the gift of a lifetime a special surprise from heaven um and I think when I look at the the comments that it received I think about you know the mixed reception um I think it's always start it's always important to to preface any discussion when we're talking about grief responses um about you know it's unfair to dictate to anyone how they should grieve or judge Mm. the bereaved for finding comfort in more unconventional methods of mourning or ways of continuing bonds with the deceased and to create a sense of an ongoing relationship with them after they've died um because you know if anything grief grief is so unpredictable and although we may not understand um why she maybe enjoyed the hologram it's not our place Mm. to you know necessarily say that it's unwelcome or or it's you know it's bad or it's you know but actually yeah like i think the whole issue it raises so many important issues with regards to consent and the rights of the dead who gets to speak for the dead um and is there a case that, that the holograms it's in is it in some ways a, a puppet um and it's digital creators or it's script writers um are master manipulators it's it's um there's so many so many ethical concerns that's what i find very much about it and we don't know whether i assume i'm not sure i can't confirm because i'm not friends with the kardashians whether kenya west was the the person who wrote the script but because there's that line i think, I think maybe it
3: was, I, was just
2: guessing. I think i think we can hazard a guess yeah, so I that, think yes so. i not 100 was-
3: sure but yeah
2: <laughs> <laughs> he was yeah. i know i know the most 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 i feel like i've lost i lost yeah. count of the amounts of most that he used um it does but yeah yeah it,
3: it raises some i mean even even from like a, you know financially how you know certain people will be able to access things like this or yes, is it al- yeah. is it done algorithmically where you have conversations based off you know online conversations it's it's really like Truly.
2: Yeah, it's, it's, and it, it really, you know, and it does make you think because I think a lot of people think, oh, those crazy Kardashians, what will they get up to next? Yeah. But it's actually, it could be a really, like, real possibility Watershed, because yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, it, it's true. And I, I think, um, So much of the content as well like it was quite staged and we have this like idea that they're they're sharing very intimate memories but actually it sends a very very public message under the illusion of sending a very um private one Mm -hmm. and i think it got me thinking because of kim's Kim's influence will gifting someone a hologram become the next big trend in digital death culture might one might one day we be signing release forms giving permission to our descendants to create a posthumous hologram of us and even if so to whom do we give permission and how can we guarantee what images or words they might put into our mouths um and if anyone then can (laughs) can create these you know there is the very real possibility that people could misuse our digital data for more sinister purposes in ways that are degrading or vengeful harmful for both the dead um, and the bereaved so there's there's so many even with regards to ownership and I think digital tech companies sort of seizing this opportunity of the publicity that the hologram garnered to attract um or to boost their business because mm. I think at uh, presently the Rob Kardashian hologram I was having a look because I was like how do they make these things um but his hologram is currently the face of the company that created it oh, wow. and so it's therefore being used as promo material or as advertising yeah. without his consent um so again you know it's almost like that sort of trying to capitalize on this and to commodify um the dead and their memories but and in a sense to profit from grief and those who are desperate to reunite with the dead in any shape or form mm. um, so there's there's so many issues and almost like you i think there needs to be some sort of regulatory framework um that needs to be introduced to protect the rights of the dead and the bereaved, in this sense, because once once it's shared, and, and Kim's obviously was shared by millions mm. of of her followers on social media. Anyone with a phone could technically download it and then maybe misappropriate it further, um, for sinister ends. Um, so and that's I think that's that's actually oddly enough when I was thinking about the commodification of it, um, companies could also you know pitch the idea that purchasing a hologram for the bereaved is a way of giving someone the gift of goodbye, especially now in the COVID context because there are so many restrictions surrounding funerals and, you know, we mightn't get to say goodbye to the to our loved one because we can't physically be with them, we can't hold their hand. Um, so it could no. be misused in this way.
3: Well, given us so much to think about, Kelsey. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, it was really great to to have your insight and, and talk about your work on the podcast. Um, thanks again, and hopefully we'll chat to you again.
2: Thank you so much. It's you. real privilege.